You're listening to Bible Truth Feed, a podcast by Christadelphianvideo.org for Christadelphians and all those seeking the truth about the Bible message. Join us now as we present our latest episode. Understanding God's Righteousness, episode number 54. Witnessing the faith-validating hidden glory of God. This class, this episode, offers two examples of the hidden glory of the Creator that are accessible exclusively to those who correctly understand the terms of God's righteousness. These are, number one, the mirror structure of the universe alongside the wilderness configuration at the beginning of the first kingdom of God age. And secondly, the incredible seven and eight pattern demonstrated over and over in those two witnesses of God's righteousness, the Bible and creation. This will be the 54th um, presentation in this series entitled Understanding God's Righteousness. Now, before we move into the next principle of thanksgiving and praise that I thought would be this class at the end of last week, I'd like to add a couple of examples to one of those five avenues for growing our faith that were noted in our previous class. These included... um, faith-validating experiences, which can be both community-wide and completely personal. Secondly, the fiery trials that we experience in our lives, that quality conditioning that God requires. Third, prayer and fasting as recommended by Jesus. Fourth, witnessing the hidden glory of God. And fifth, preparing for potentially faith-threatening trials that could be faced in the future through proactively experiencing them in our minds and hearts. Now, we considered examples of each of those five faith-promoting avenues with the exception of one. This was number four, witnessing that glory of God hidden in the two avenues of testimony our Creator has provided for validating His rightness. This hidden glory was described and framed, but Examples were not really provided. Uh, Personally, this issue of witnessing that hidden glory of God has been the most valuable faith-encouraging source in my own life. Therefore, it, it seemed inappropriate not to offer examples of what has inspired me personally. The key to accessing that glory that God hides at this time but will begin to cover the earth like the waters cover the sea after the kingdom of God is restored, that key is realizing God communicates with intentional complexity. Now, I realize I've stated this a number of times in these classes and in many other classes, class series that I've presented, but the heart's craving and insistence on simplicity is seductive and acts as a locked door to that hidden glory. Not only does the entire societal structure of the sons of men insist on the foundational rule of simplicity, this is also the case in most of the enlightened community as well. This presumption of simplicity is the filter that will not permit that intentionally hidden divine glory to be witnessed. The inspiring and confidence-ensuring capacity of that glory is very considerable and, and completely unfathomable in full measure. When we combine that expectation of complexity with the level of respect for insisting on God's comprehensive rightness at all time, at all times, that that principle of God manifestation that demands all things blend together harmoniously, perfectly together, then that challenge of truly witnessing that intentionally hidden glory becomes much more challenging. 
then we still have to add those two components of this challenging equation to the fact that our instinctive thought process is an even greater obstacle to witnessing that hidden glory. We are all born with that foundational serpent perspective, that Diabolos effect generating from a heart-controlled thought process. These three issues combine to create a very challenging path to actually accessing the faith growth power that can be derived from witnessing just a measure of that intentionally hidden glory of God. So we have these three difficulties, God's communication policy of intentional complexity, two, the principle of God manifestation, that everything has to blend together perfectly with everything else to the honor of God, or it isn't correct. And third, the challenge of our instinct, instinctive and most comfortable frame of reference, which is invariably self-worshipping and self-accommodating. We do need to remember those two basic confirmations of that intentionally complex divine communication policy. I mean, there's, there's quite, there's very extensive truth, this intentional complexity policy of God's in communication, but but let's just review the two basic ones we can we have considered at various points in the past because we will face endless resistance from those who insist that God communicates in very simple terms and that all he really wants is some excuse just to save us. While it's certainly true, God would like to have everyone come to a knowledge of the truth and also be saved. That is not his primary goal. His primary goal is quality in the sense that he develops. And this is why he communicates with intentional complexity, as that complexity requires an intense response that can only be qualified by a heart-denied thought process. It's the only way to see that hidden glory. The first of those two primary examples is where God rebukes Aaron and Miriam for undermining Moses due to his, uh, to their, <laughs> what they considered to be an unacceptable choice of wife. What's truly fascinating is the reasoning God uses for asking how these two uh, older siblings, also leaders in the enlightened community, were somehow not smart enough to be afraid of undermining the authority of Moses. We read this account in Numbers chapter 12 on Aaron and Miriam spake against Moses because of the Ethiopian woman whom he had married, for he had married an Ethiopian woman. And they said, Hath the Lord indeed spoken only by Moses? Has he not chosen, uh, spoken also by us? And the Lord heard it. Now the man Moses was very meek, above all the men were, that were upon the face of the earth. And Yahweh spake suddenly unto Moses and unto Aaron and unto Miriam, Come out, you three, unto the tabernacle of the congregation. And they three came out. And the Lord came down in the pillar of the cloud and stood in the door of the tabernacle and called Aaron and Miriam. And they both came forth. And he said, Hear now my words. If there be a prophet among you, I, the Lord, will make myself known to him in a vision and will speak unto him in a dream. My servant Moses is not so, who is faithful in all mine house. With him will I speak mouth to mouth, even apparently, and not in dark speeches. And the similitude of the Lord shall he behold. Wherefore then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? And the anger of the Lord was kindled against them, and he departed. So God explains that every other prophet with which God communicates is limited to those avenues of intentional complexity, a, a vision, a dream, dark speeches. But Moses was unique in that God communicated directly to Moses and without that intentional complexity he imposed on everyone else. So the question God angrily posed was, why weren't you afraid to speak against Moses? 
the only man in the world that God could speak with like a friend. And this is what God, this is what's said about God's communication to Moses in Exodus 33. It says, And the Lord spake unto Moses face to face as a man speaks unto his friend. Now we're also told why Moses had this incredible privilege. We read that answer in verse 3. Now the man Moses was very meek above all the men which were upon the face of the earth. That is the purpose of this intentionally complex communication policy of God, to develop that quality component of meekness. Do we remember how God defines those in whom he will take his rest? They tremble at his words. They are contrite and humble. That naturally arrogant and self-worshipping and unafraid, heart-generated thought process will have been circumcised. This is what permits us to witness the hidden glory behind God's invariably and intentionally complex communication policy. Now, that other quick example of this counterintuitive policy of intentional complexity is the reason Jesus gives to his disciples for why he spoke in those often confusing parables to the enlightened, covenant-bound community, but exclusively explained those parables privately to his closest disciples. We read of this answer in Matthew, 10, uh, Matthew 13, verse 10. Uh, it says, And the disciples came and said to him, Why speakest thou unto them in parables? He answered and said unto them, Because it is given to you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. But to them, the rest of the enlightened community, in other words, to them, it's not given. For whosoever has, to him shall be given. And he shall have more abundance. But whosoever has not, from him shall be taken away, even that he has. Therefore, I speak to them in parables, because they seeing, see not. And hearing, they hear not, neither do they understand. And in them is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah, which says, By hearing you shall hear, and shall not understand. And seeing you shall see, and shall not perceive. For this people's heart is waxed gross, and their ears are dull of hearing, and their eyes they have closed, lest at any time they should see with their eyes, and hear with their eyes, and should understand with their heart, and should be converted, and I should heal them. But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. End quote. Jesus explained that the parables acted like a filter, giving more to those within the enlightened, covenant-bound community who already had, while simultaneously taking away from those who had not, also within the Jewish community, which was the enlightened community of that generation, just as the Christadelphians are the enlightened, covenant-bound community of this generation. The understanding of those parables was impossible to those within the enlightened community with, with gross hearts, unseeing eyes, and unhearing ears, who did everything possible to avoid understanding, truly being converted, and then being healed by the Son of God. That generation of the enlightened community was just like the generation of Moses. What could ever give us the impression that our generation of the enlightened community is any different as those two generations are sister generations of ours, just like the transition generation of Moses that enjoyed the establishment of the kingdom of God on earth, so will we, so will our generation. Just like the, the ministry generation of Jesus enjoyed the presence of the Son of God, so our exact generation will enjoy his second coming. Let's, let's not fall into the trap of presuming that, well, we're just so much better as a community than our sister generations were. That thought trap will prevent the witnessing of that hidden glory of God that has the capacity to be so encouraging. Our point is that there are great things 
that can be seen and heard in those two divinely appointed witnesses of the written Word of God, the Bible, and the spoken Word of God, creation. If we can just get mentally past God's intentional complexity filter. So I'd like to share just a couple examples of this hidden glory that has been so inspiring to me. Uh, this first example took me, took me quite a while, a long time to understand. I started noticing the testimony of creation and how it paralleled scripture so perfectly. When, when I was in my mid to late 20s, uh, I started noticing the patterns in divine expressions like heaven and earth and the consistent application of certain features of creation like clouds, rain, water, even rocks. I started to see divine patterns in numbers and patterns within patterns that demonstrated a great consistency and context, but only when the features of God's righteousness were correctly understood. And those numbers were correctly identified from, from a spiritual perspective. One of the constraining issues in the progress of these observations was a fear of being wrong. Um, I, I couldn't stand the thought that I could possibly be misrepresenting God or become seduced by the process and end up being a teacher of manipulated lies. Well, I noticed a distinct but still incomplete parallel between God's design of the enlightened community when he initiated his kingdom at Sinai and God's design of the structure of the universe. The structure of the universe is simply a commonly defined and accepted definition that we're all taught in high school, or, or these days perhaps in the middle school, the first time I noticed the foundation of this scripture and creation parallel was when I noted how just like the memorial name of God, with its four-letter construction of YHWH, there are exactly four unique structural features in the universe. These are matter and space and time and energy. Literally everything that can be observed in our universe fits within those four categories. Now, scientists will love to suggest there are things that we cannot see, or even define particularly, uh, that are surely parts of our universe. And this has often been referred to as the quantum category in the study of physics. However, we can provide a spiritual and scientific answer to that category of quantum physics and we may get to that at some point in our studies. Um, so just like the name of God, with its four letters, there are exclusively four components to all of creation. It's fairly easy to note how there are three subdivisions uh, to at least three of these four universe components. Um, matter subdivides into three categories of solids, liquids, and gases. That's all there is, just three. I mean, we should comment on how some scientists attempt to insist, well, there's a fourth matter category uh, with they want to call plasma. However, plasma is simply a gas category where some gas substances can be heated to a degree that ionizes that gas. And we see this principle demonstrated in uh, fluorescent lights, plasma television screens, and, as well as our sun. However, plasma is really just a subcategory of that third matter state of gas. This ionized gas state does exhibit different effects and capabilities than the gases that have not been ionized. But that doesn't change the fact that plasma is just a separate form of gas. There are subcategories of other, other matter categories as well, but there are still only three distinct matter categories to be witnessed in the order of creation, or what the godless refer to as nature. Space subdivides into exactly three-dimensional categories of height, width, and depth. 
exactly three. There don't seem to be any pseudo-scientific challenges to this second of the four universe components. Third, uh, time subdivides into exactly three categories of past, present, and future. Exactly three. Number, number four, it's energy that presented the difficulty for me for a long time. According to science, there are only two basic energy categories. First would be passive energy, which is energy at rest. Uh, this could be a, uh, a barrel of oil or a wooden log, simply potential energy. The second would be energy in motion, which is called kinetic energy. This would be a burning barrel of oil or a burning log. There did not appear to be a third leg for that fourth energy component of the universe. One day I was doing my Bible readings alone at the time, reading about the activity of the Holy Spirit, when I finally realized there was a third separate energy category that could not possibly be limited to being defined as simply passive or simply active, and no scientific experiments could ever uh, separate out and be applied to the existence or measurement of this third energy category, which is the Creator's Holy Spirit. This is the unique and unlimited power by which all things were created and are sustained, and by which the current plan of God continues to progress to its heaven and earth conclusion, when death and sin will be eliminated in that eighth millennium since creation. The unlimited energy source of God's Holy Spirit serves as that third category of energy, distinct from both passive energy and kinetic energy. The hidden glory we are searching for is how this observation perfectly and exactly parallels God's design of the enlightened community when he initiated his kingdom at Sinai. With creation, we have Yahweh at the center with those four letters in the name that he identifies himself by. Extending out from that name are those four structural components of creation, which are space, time, matter, energy. Extending out from each of those four structural components are three subcategories. The wilderness conf configuration has God in the center in that rectangular tabernacle with its four sides and surrounding uh, surrounded by that four-sided curtain barrier. Then we have a spiritual or heavenly uh, layer, a structure of four encampments. These were the three Levite divisions. The Merarites camped to the south of the tabernacle, that God's center of the encampment. The Gershonites camped to the west. The Merarites camped to the north. The priests and Moses camped on the east of their tabernacle perfectly paralleling the universe structure and how those four heavenly component appointments of matter, space, time, and energy extend out from the Creator. Also, in the exact parallel fashion, each of those four spiritual or heavenly assigned encampments surrounding the tabernacle each have three political or earthly tribal assignments extending out from them. As we can see on the slide, Judah, Issachar, and Zebulun in the east, etc. This perfectly matching parallel between the layered structure of creation and the corresponding structure of the enlightened community at the establishment of the first kingdom of God on earth serves as glorious hidden testimony that our God is the intelligent designer who crafted our world and our environment, seeing the end from the beginning. We see a small measure of his glory in this parallel. But if we're, if we're among those in our community who dismiss the significance of that first kingdom, referring to God's, law, God's laws as, well, just Moses' laws, and nothing of consequence for us to consider, which is all too frequently stated in our community, and if we listen to those who adamantly refuse to accept the many prophecies of the restoration of that kingdom and those laws and temple worship and animal sacrifices, then all this glory blackens 
to invisibility, shut off by eyes that don't see and ears that don't hear. I would also add that I, I certainly don't believe this is somehow the extent of that beauty hidden in these parallel structures. That presumption would, would be quite, quite pompous and dangerously arrogant. There's no end to the depth of the glory of our God. But underestimating God is as common as breathing. We don't have the capacity to witness the extent of God's glory. But if we get the terms of his righteousness correct, we can see some of that hidden glory. Another example of this hidden glory that has been exceptionally faith-encouraging to me is numerically based. Uh, this example offers a clear case of that hidden glory remaining unwitnessed due to incorrect understandings. This is the seven and eight pattern that quietly and subtly runs through scripture and, of course, creation as well. The recognition of this pattern that reveals a measure of the hidden glory of God is impossible if we respect such incorrect understandings as, well, there's only one resurrection category, and that resurrection is a term that exclusively applies to the resurrection to immortality. The recognition of this 7-8 pattern that reveals a measure of the hidden glory of God is impossible if we respect the common misunderstanding in our community that, well, God's plan is only for 7,000 years. Sadly, it is extremely easy, actually childishly easy, to scripturally prove that God's plan is not over in just 7,000 years. But that mistake disengages all the hidden glory, resulting from realizing God's plan actually ends in the eighth millennium, that eighth divine day, and not by the end of the seventh. The recognition of this seven and eight pattern that reveals a measure of that hidden glory of God is impossible if we don't believe the testimony of Jesus about rising from the dead after three days and also being in the grave for three days and three nights. If we prefer the testimony of the harlot church and her daughters that, well, Jesus died on a Friday afternoon and rose to mortality in the early morning on Sunday, that rejection of Christ's testimony automatically blinds us to the hidden glory in the seven and eight pattern to be witnessed repeatedly in scripture and creation, which are God's two required witnesses in our own life and death trial. So let's consider just some of the hidden glory in this seven and eight pattern. I believe the foundational issue from which it all radiates would be that Jesus was the seventh participant in a, res in a resurrection on a seventh day, that Saturday Sabbath, on the 17th of Nisan, in the year 30 of the Common Era. Six people preceded Jesus in rising from death back to mortality, as presented in Scripture. The son of the widow of Zarephath, the son of the Shunammite mother, uh, by Elisha, the corpse that touched the skeleton of Elisha, the son of the widow of Nain, the daughter of Jairus and Lazarus, and then Jesus. This was simply the awakening category of resurrection, not the new birth or nature-covering resurrection category. This first resurrection of Jesus, back to, simply back to mortality, is referenced by Daniel, when he says, many of them that sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. We awaken to judgment with the same nature that we had when we fell asleep, died, which is what happens every morning when we wake up from our death-like sleep, that same person we were when we fell asleep, only some of those who Daniel prophesies as awakening, being resurrected back to mortality, will enjoy everlasting life, as some will inherit shame 
and everlasting contempt. But when then Jesus was resurrected a second time, but this was to immortality, and this was the next day, the day after that seventh day Sabbath, and therefore a kind of eighth day, as well as being the first day of the week. In the same way, Jesus is defined in Revelation as the Alpha and the Omega. Uh, the, the first day of the week was also that eighth day from when Jesus was chosen as the national Passover lamb on the 10th of Nisan um, to four days, and just like the Passover lamb was kept for four days to the fourth day of when Jesus was uh, crucified on the 14th of Nisan and uh, then to his immortalization on the 18th. So Jesus was both the seventh and the eighth to experience a resurrection. But there were two different resurrection categories. First, back to mortality, and second, to immortality. But there is also a subtle confirmation of this seven and eight pattern in the two timestamps of the beginning and ending of the crucifixion of Jesus on the day of his death. Jesus was crucified at the third hour of the day. But that was the third hour of daylight, not the third hour of the 14th of Nisan, not the third hour of Passover, since 12 hours of night had preceded that third hour of the day. Then the hour that Jesus began to be crucified would be known as the 15th hour of that 24-hour day, which is 15 is the combination of 7 plus 8. Now, confirming the validity of this observation would be the final timestamp of that crucifixion, the point at which Jesus died. This is defined as the ninth hour of the day, which would be the 21st hour of the 14th of Nisan, that Passover day, which is seven-eighths of the entire day. 21 out of 24, seven-eighths. These are certainly subtle observations, but that's the nature of God's hidden glory. And we have a repeated seven and eight pattern in both the crucifixion of the Son of God, as well as his two resurrections, first to mortality on a seventh day, and then to immortality on a kind of eighth day, as well as the first day. Now that simply initiates the pattern. And some may wish to challenge certain aspects of these observations, perhaps insisting that there is no such thing as a resurrection back to mortality, or that Jesus did not exit the tomb on Saturday afternoon, or that he actually died on the previous Friday afternoon, or that he ate the Passover on the 13th, the day before Passover, so that he could be dying at the same time that the priests were so inappropriately killing the Passover lambs in the afternoon in daylight on the 13th, as they refused to comply with God's command to kill the Passover lamb after sunset in the dark on the 14th. That, that particular oddly popular mistaken understanding also makes Jesus into a sinner that would have been undeserving of salvation as God declared that anyone not complying with his command to eat the Passover on the 14th had to be permanently ostracized from the enlightened community. With such a command, how is it possible? So many of our teachers suggest that Jesus ate the Passover meal at a divinely forbidden day and time. Where's the fear of being wrong about God's testimony? We're told very clearly that Jesus was at the home of Simon the leper on the evening of the 13th. Where he, where he ate and, and his, uh, he was anointed to his death. So simple to prove that contention incorrect. That is very God and Christ despising. Now with all foundational scriptural patterns, if they are legitimate, they'll be repeated in the same context. That observation that Jesus was the seventh resurrection participant on a seventh day and the eighth on an eighth day serves as a precedent for the two scheduled resurrections of the saints. Now, these are scheduled for the beginning of the seventh divine day, seventh millennium, and the beginning of the eighth divine day since creation. Now, we personally hope to participate in that first of the two salvation events 
of the saints at the beginning of the millennial kingdom, that seventh divine day, that Sabbath rest, when sin will be chained in the bottomless pit, and there will be a global rest from the physical effects of sin. That second resurrection of the saints is scheduled for after the expiration of the millennial kingdom in the eighth day, not within the kingdom, as is most often taught within our community. Revelation 20 makes it perfectly clear that sin is released from its chains and from being restrained in that bottomless pit after the thousand-year kingdom has concluded. In Revelation 20, we read, And I saw an angel come down from heaven, having the key of the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand, and he laid hold of the dragon, that old serpent, which is the devil and Satan, and bound him a thousand years, and cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal upon him that he should deceive the nations no more until the thousand years should be fulfilled. And after that, he must be loosed for a little season. It is also after the conclusion of the Millennial Kingdom, and therefore in the eighth divine day, when there will be a rebellion against the rule of Christ and the saints. Uh, we read that in, in dropping down to verse 7. And when the thousand years are expired, Satan shall be loosed out of his prison and shall go out to deceive the nations which are in the four quarters of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle. The number of them is as the sand of the sea. So following the defeat of that rebellion in the eighth millennium, the final resurrection and judgment is scheduled. Therefore, also in that eighth day, after those rejected are eliminated, and that third resurrection to immortality, that, that second resurrection of the saints in the eighth day is scheduled, this is followed by the elimination of death, and which would of also require the elimination of sin, since death is the wages of sin. So just like the two resurrections of Jesus being the seventh on a seventh day and then the eighth on, a, on the next or eighth day, so the two resurrections of the saints are time-stamped as the seventh and eighth days. But the hidden glory in this seven and eight pattern is also demonstrated in the two great covenants of works and faith. The Mosaic covenant of works with its signature ritual of that seventh-day Sabbath observance, and the Abrahamic covenant of faith with its signature ritual of circumcision on the eighth day. Now, just as eight is numerically greater than seven, the Abrahamic covenant of faith is greater than the Mosaic covenant of works, and also that the complete cutting away of death and sin in the eighth day, uh, and, and along with the physical effects of sin, in that eighth millennium, is greater than the mere rest from sin and the rest from the physical effects of sin in the seventh millennium. And this is why the Jewish people correctly chose to circumcise a boy on his eighth day, even if that landed on a Sabbath, choosing circumcision over Sabbath observance. Now, this is also why circumcision will be required again in the millennial kingdom, as is prophesied, because the substance of that circumcision shadow ritual will still have to be fulfilled. That fulfillment will be in the eighth divine day, the eighth millennium, when all flesh will be cut off in circumcision-like fashion, that eighth day when death and the grave and sin are eliminated from all of creation. Ezekiel prophesies of this circumcision requirement in the kingdom in Chapter 44, he says, Thus saith the Lord God, No stranger, uncircumcised in heart, nor uncircumcised in flesh, shall enter into my sanctuary of any stranger that is among the children of Israel. But the significance, the hidden glory of this 7 and 8 pattern that can only be seen when we understand the terms of God's righteousness correctly, this hidden glory can be witnessed in many other applications as well. In fact, Ezekiel's plan for that fourth divine sanctuary that Jesus will construct at Jerusalem demonstrates this same pattern of seven and eight in the two-stage progression into that temple. Entering the outer court of the temple required climbing seven steps. 
in order to enter that outer court. This is noted in Ezekiel 40, verses 22 and 26. But in order to enter the inner court, that next level of holiness in this architectural shadow design, required climbing eight steps. This design feature is described in verses 31, 34, and 37 of that same chapter, Ezekiel 40. Just as Jesus had to progress from death to God's nature by being the seventh and the eighth resurrection participant, and the saints will have to be resurrected over two salvation events in the seventh and eighth millenniums, so we have these seven steps to enter the outer court of that last temple, and then the eight steps to enter into the inner court of that last temple. This also explains why the life of King Hezekiah was extended by exactly 15 years after his sentence of death. 15 is the combination of those two numbers of 7 plus 8, just as we noted in the that beginning crucifixion timestamp of Jesus. The third hour of the day was the 15th hour of the 24-hour day, 7 plus 8. We know that Jesus is the substance casting all of those animal sacrifice shadows that were consumed in flames as required by God. And we've noted in the past uh, that there's a clear demonstration of this hidden glory of the 7 and 8 pattern in these Christ shadows, as there were a total of eight categories of animal sacrifices, but only seven were offered on the Christ altar of burnt offering. No female bovine, steer, was offered on that altar, only the male, the bullock. That eighth animal sacrifice, uh, sacrifice category, the red heifer, the female bovine, was consumed to ashes outside the camp. Another salvation ritual shadow demonstrating the hidden glory in the seven and eight pattern is Jubilee Law. A jubilee was a set of 50 years with a Sabbath year of rest every seventh year. The seventh Sabbath year came at 49 years in each 50-year jubilee term. Then the eighth Sabbath year immediately followed that seventh within that 50-year jubilee time frame. And this is just like the seven and eight pattern in the Sabbath kingdom, scheduled for the seventh divine day since creation, with its thousand-year rest from the oppressive physical effects of sin to be followed immediately by the eighth divine day, which will see the complete elimination of death and sin and those oppressive physical effects of sin, the complete cutting away of that Diablos effect in mankind um, and the complete circumcision-like elimination of the principle of decay in all of creation. This seven and eight, the hidden glory in this seven and eight pattern can also be seen in the eight eternal fires in God's design of the tabernacle, that first of the four divine sanctuaries. God is defined as a consuming fire. Paul tells us in Hebrews 12, to serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear, for our God is a consuming fire. Those seven golden lamps in the holy chamber were supposed to always be burning, always providing light to that holy chamber. The eighth fire was on that Christ altar of burnt offering, and God commanded that that flame should also never be allowed to be extinguished. The spiritual substance binding these eight flames with this same seven and eight hidden pattern is enlightenment. That's the obvious spiritual significance to the seven golden lamps and light and mint. This is why it was the first of the three morning and evening rituals each day to refuel the seven lamps. But hopefully we still remember the behavioral response that God declared he wanted from the burnt offerings. This is um, a verse I hope everybody's put to memory by now. I've quoted it so many times. Uh, for I desired mercy, God says, and not sacrifice, meaning uh, loving mercy, kased, and not zabak, the peace offering, and the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. The usual 
interpretation in our community for the significance of the burnt offering is merely simply dedication to God. It is a whole burnt offering. It was offered every morning, every evening, doubled on every Sabbath. But that's only a partial and very general understanding. The focus of that dedication is supposed to be the knowledge of God. That's what he declares right here in Hosea 6. That's God's interpretation of the spiritual lesson of the burnt offering. That also, uh, according to Leviticus 1 and so many other places, provided an atonement just like the sin offering. So the hidden glory in this 7 and 8 pattern also embraces the eight eternal flames in the tabernacle design, all embracing the theme of this series of studies, understanding the righteousness of God. That hidden glory in the 7 and 8 pattern is also demonstrated, very appropriately, in the third and last harvest feast week, the Feast of Tabernacles. This is the harvest feast week projecting the Creator's third and last salvation event, not the second, that third harvesting of mankind in the eighth millennium. God initially defines the Feast of Tabernacles as lasting seven days, but just like the Feast of Unleavened Bread and the Feast of Weeks. But then he adds an eighth day, which he says has to be a high Sabbath. We read in Leviticus chapter 23, uh, Speak unto the children of Israel, saying, The fifteenth day of the seventh month shall be the Feast of Tabernacles for seven days unto the Lord. And then dropping down to verse 39, also in the fifteenth day of the seventh month, when you've gathered in the fruit of the land, you shall keep a feast unto the Lord seven days. On the first day shall be a Sabbath, and on the eighth day shall be a Sabbath. This seven and eight pattern is demonstrated in that shadow projection of the last immortalization in that eighth day. After those seven thousand years, of that millennial kingdom, including that millennial kingdom, were just history. Now, this pattern is also seen in how the three morning and evening daily rituals during the first kingdom age changed from a total of six per day over six days to eight on the seventh day. The refueling of the seven golden lamps, followed by the burning of the four equal incense ingredients, and then the one whole burnt offering, seven plus four plus one, those 12 steps and those progressive three rituals, morning and evening. 12 steps in the morning, 12 steps in the evening, just like the 24 elders representing the immortalized saints, two sets of 12, two immortalizations of the saints. Those six daily beginning and ending rituals become eight on the seventh day because the whole burnt offering was doubled on that seventh day Sabbath, every week. In fact, the seven and eight pattern that's enabled by that doubling of the whole burnt offering on the Sabbath in that first kingdom age presents a similar demonstration of that seven and eight pattern in the context of the whole burnt offering in the future restored kingdom age, that Sabbath kingdom. In the kingdom about to be established by Jesus Christ, a morning burnt offering will be required but there's no mention of an evening burnt offering in Ezekiel's prophecy of the temple serf, the future temple service. We see in Ezekiel 46, um, God's commands that you shall prepare, daily prepare a burnt offering unto the Lord of a lamb of the first year without blemish. You shall prepare it every morning. And in verse 15, thus shall they prepare the lamb and the meat or grain offering and the oil every morning for a continual burnt offering. But once again, we see a similar pattern as the first kingdom age. We don't, don't read of any, any golden lamps being refueled at this time. We don't read of any incense burning in the future temple. We just read about the morning burnt offering repeated for six days. But on the seventh day, that one burnt offering becomes eight. The prince, which can only possibly refer to Jesus Christ, has to add another seven burnt offerings on each Sabbath for 
a total of eight. In Ezekiel 46, we read, And the burnt offering that the prince shall offer unto the Lord in the Sabbath day shall be six lambs without blemish and a ram without blemish. Now this creates a doubled emphasis on that hidden glory of the seven and eight pattern. First, we have the preceding six burnt offerings from Sunday through Friday, but on each seventh day Sabbath, we see the prince adding another seven burnt offerings to provide eight on that seventh day. But there's another seven and eight pattern in this Sabbath procedure. There are seven lambs used for those burnt offerings, and then there's one ram, a second pattern of seven within a pattern of eight. Now, the last example uh, of this seven and eight pattern demonstrating that hidden glory of God that can be a powerful source of faith confirmation uh, that we still have time to consider is the creationally based testimony of the firmament. Now, the firmament is our atmosphere. The atmosphere of our planet was created on the second of the six creation days. The firmament was positioned above the waters covering the earth um, and below the waters placed above the firmament. Those were the waters um, outside the uh, uh, that structure of the firmament that collapsed when the earth suffered the flood. Since those waters were above the firmament, they would have to have formed an ice sphere encircling the earth. That would explain why a rainbow would never have been seen until those upper waters collapsed. Uh, it would skew the light and would be enabled to create a, a rainbow despite having clouds and rain and weather pattern. It would help explain also why lifespans would be dramatically greater before the flood, but not after the flood. But the firmament is our consideration. That's our atmosphere. Now, both Daniel and Jesus Christ identify this firmament with the hope of salvation, just like the seven and eight pattern in the two resurrections of Jesus Christ and the anticipated two resurrections of the saints in the seventh and eighth millennium. Daniel says in chapter 12, prophesying of these two resurrections, and at that time your people shall be delivered, everyone that shall be found written in the book, and many of them that sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And they that be wise shall shine as the brightness of the firmament. And they that turn men into righteousness as the stars forever and ever. But thou, Daniel, shut up the words, seal the book, even to the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro and knowledge shall be increased. We are now at that time of the end. And two of the features of our last generation are the extreme um, uh, improvements in running to and fro and knowledge being increased, as no generation ever before us since creation. So Daniel identifies the saints, those who will inherit everlasting life, as shining like the brightness of the firmament. But Jesus also associates salvation with our atmosphere, the firmament. Nicodemus uh, could not understand what Jesus meant by being born a second time. And sadly, many Bible students misunderstand this phrase. They diminish it, the testimony of Jesus, into nothing more than a change of heart, a kind of heart and mind conversion. But Jesus was actually declaring that in order to actually inherit the kingdom, one has to be reborn into a new nature, from a flesh nature into a spirit nature. He's describing the immortalization procedure, not a simple faith conversion. This is why Jesus says in John chapter 8, I'm sorry, John chapter 3, verses 6 through 8, um, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Marvel not that I said unto you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it listeth, and you hear the sound thereof, but cannot tell whence it comes and whither it goes. So is every one that is born of the Spirit. These are the two births the saints will experience. 
flesh first, uh, that water birth uh, from our mother, and then spirit from our immortal father, Jesus Christ and God, as well as God. To mortal life and to immortal life. Now, like Daniel, Jesus parallels immortal life to our atmosphere, to the wind, which is the firmament that is moving and active. So the hidden glory is how our atmosphere, this firmament, this divinely appointed parallel to the spirit nature, is defined by this same seven and eight pattern. You see, over 99% of our atmosphere is composed of two elements. These are nitrogen and oxygen. And interestingly enough, nitrogen makes up 78% of our atmosphere. And interestingly, uh, oxygen comprises 21% of that firmament. These are the seventh and eighth elements on the chart of the elements of creation. A nitrogen atom has seven protons, seven electrons, and seven neutrons. The oxygen atom has eight protons, eight electrons, and eight neutrons, paralleling the numerical pattern of our Savior and how the six Greek alphabet, alphanumeric letters making up the name of Jesus add up to those same three-eighths, eight, 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 as the oxygen atom. This double validation of the seven eight pattern in the air we breathe is another one of those examples of the intentionally hidden divine glory. It is the consistency of this pattern and its common salvation and savior context initially, initially radiating out from the two resurrections of Jesus Christ that validates the legitimacy of seeing that hidden glory that's only permitted to those who first correctly understand the terms of God's righteousness. If we mistakenly presume that there's only one category of resurrection, that there is exclusively the resurrection to immortality, if we presume that Jesus died on a Friday afternoon and exited the tomb as an immortal at dawn on Sunday, if we presume that well, God only has a specifically 7,000-year plan, and if we presume God only communicates with simplicity and easily understood testimony, then all that glory just fades to black, having no capacity whatsoever to provide a powerful fuel for our faith. Now, these are just two examples of the hidden glory, hidden from all others but available to us if we will search for God's glory. This particular faith growth avenue has been very powerful in my own life. This is the glory that will no longer be hidden when Christ restores the kingdom and God's glory begins to spread all through the earth as the waters cover the sea. Mankind will begin to realize just how blind they have been and how incredible is our Creator. We have the opportunity to witness a small measure of that promised glory now. And, and that, that glimpse of God's glory that is to be revealed in the kingdom can be very faith-assuring. Now, I assume, I assume that the next class will actually address the principle of thanksgiving. And I know I've been saying that for two or three next two or three weeks in a row now, so perhaps next week. I had originally intended to move on to the principle of thankfulness with this class, but I realized we had not directly addressed a very significant issue concerning faith, which is the trials of our faith. There are a number of rules found in Scripture about these expected challenges to our faith. First, Thank you for joining us. We hope you found the episode helpful. Don't forget, most of these episodes are also available as videos on our video channel, cdvideo.org. 
So head over and take a look. If you have any comments or questions or suggestions, please get in touch or leave us a voice message. We love to hear your feedback. You can email us at btf at cdvideo.org. If you enjoyed the episode, then please share it with others. Until next time, may God bless you in your studies and your walk towards God's kingdom. Amen.